From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Tackling Uveitic CME, Part 2. If you've got macular edema, you're, you're dealing a little bit with a ticking clock. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. This is part two of my interview with Jen Thorne about periocular triamcinolone for uveitic CME. We'll pick up where we ended last time. Elevation in intraocular pressure should probably be considered a concomitant effect rather than an an adverse event uh, since, since, since nearly half of your, your patients had some rise in pressure. Uh, now, aside from mild ocular hypertension, uh, how often were adverse events observed? Well, what we found, and, and first of all, I think we need to put a, an appropriate ca- caveat here, because this is a retrospective study, um, we're, these patients were treated according to a clinical bias. So um, the, the practice pattern at Hopkins uh, was to be very careful about patients that had ocular hypertension in their past. And so by and large, the patients that were exposed to periocular corticosteroid injections did not have a history of ocular hypertension or glaucoma and in fact were rarely on glaucoma medication. So we're, we're looking at a group of patients that by and large were probably less likely to mount ocular hypertensive response to periocular injection. Um, we found that of these patients, there were 56 of 130 eyes that developed a pressure spike to greater than 22 millimeters of mercury, but only 29 eyes that went above 30 and only four that required glaucoma surgery. So the rates of those three outcomes were then 35% per eye year for greater than, for 22 or greater uh, ocular pressure, Uh, 14% per eye year for eye pressure of 30 or greater, and only 2% per eye year for the requirement of glaucoma surgery. Now, the other thing that we probably need to take into account is is that a fair number of these eyes only had a single periocular injection because they resolved and there was more, there was no more that was needed. Uh, the other thing is is that we followed these patients because our primary outcomes had to do with 
one-month and three-month outcomes in terms of resolution and visual acuity, we only followed the eyes out to six months. So it's possible that perhaps some of these eyes went on to develop increasing eye pressures over time, but we did not investigate to that extent. Now, can I get you to touch on other adverse events, things, for example, like cataracts? There were 96 eyes that were cataract-free at the time of the first corticosteroid injection, uh, and of them, 16 eyes developed any form of cataract, and that could be quite mild. Uh, the way we defined that was trace PSC cataract one or 1 plus nuclear sclerosis or 1 plus cortical changes, so fairly mild changes. And that uh, translated to a rate of 13% per eye year. Now, there are 100, 119 eyes that were either, that were phakic, regardless of lens changes. They had no cataract or they had some cataract. And of, of the 119 eyes, 22 of them developed enough cataract that needed cataract surgery. The majority of those had cataract at the time in which they presented, obviously. So there was some progression of cataract as well, but necessitating cataract surgery. And that corresponded to a rate of 13% per eye year. Again, we have to kind of take into consideration fairly low exposure to periocular corticosteroid in terms of one, two, three injections total and short period of observation on average six months after the time of the last injection. So for the patients that only got one injection, so a total of six months of observation, for those that got multiple injections, it would be six months beyond the last one. Do you have any sense of whether this therapy is more efficacious in particular etiologies of uveitis? Uh, you know, that's a great question. Um, we did not have the statistical power in this study to really look at it. But sure. we are actually looking at a broader We've cast a broader net, and we're looking at these periocular injections in terms of how they control inflammation. So if they're used primarily to control inflammation, how do they do? And we will be looking at different varieties of uveitis in that setting. But in terms of the macular edema, we didn't look at according to diagnosis. We just didn't have, we didn't have adequate numbers. Jen, should the treatment endpoint be the clinical resolution of the CME or the OCT resolution of the CME? Clearly, if you're doing a prospective study where you have a time to design it and, and, and determine your outcome prior to enrolling patients, an OCT, an FA, uh, an OCT or an OCT plus an FA would be ideal because that gives you a lot better objective measures of retinal thickness. Unfortunately, this is retrospective, and actually some of these patients actually predate OCT. So we used OCT and FA when it was available, and that's according to what's called the SUN standards, the standardization of uveitis nomenclature, basically we met and we determined as a group of experts that for retrospective studies, clinical assessment is, is okay because that may be all you have and that may be all you ever get because in some forms of uveitis, we may never be lucky enough to do a prospective study. 
but you want to confirm or corroborate as much as you can with the ancillary testing. And of course, if you're going forward, uh, like in the multicenter uveitis steroid treatment trial or uh, the trial, the HERON study uh, that um, looked at Ozerdex, um, you know, ideally you want to have ancillary studies to confirm resolution. So when we looked, um, it did limit our numbers. Um, I, I looked at um, whether or not we could use OCT or, or FA. And I gave preferential treatment to the OCT if the two were available. And about 65% of eyes had had a measure at at least one visit. And when you included just that group, not much different uh, in terms of the results. The problem was, was that those people didn't necessarily have an OCT when they got the injection, an OCT at one month and an OCT at three months. There, there, was, probably, there was a little mishmash there um, because pref potentially when you've got vision that's down and you have obvious cysts on exam and you know you're going to give an injection anyway, you know, 10 years ago, Five years ago, as a uveitis specialist, if, if you saw the CME, you didn't really do much more. You, you knew the vision was down and you were going to give an injection anyway. So we had, we had only maybe, gosh, I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I would say maybe like on the order of 25% of the eyes that had an, an ancillary study for each of the of the baseline and the two outcome points. And so that, that made, you know, confidence intervals very wide. Uh, but the reality was, was that the, the success rate or the, the cumulative incidence of success was really no different. So the effect size was essentially the same. It was just very, you know, you're just basically eliminating the majority of your eyes. Now, I'm going to ask you, to extrapolate from the from the study a little bit here, you 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 had mentioned that chronic CME can cause structural change to the to the retina. That that the implication being that that would be something uh, in in which treatment may produce only a limited benefit. If if that do do you advise treating chronic C, CME patients any differently um, from CME that's a little bit more fresh? Um, I tend to look at it this way. I, I tend to look at if you've got macular edema, you're sitting a little, you're, you're dealing a little bit with a ticking clock. Um, when I explain this to the patient, I explain this like um, water against your wood house. So if you've got some water damage, you want to know about it as quickly as possible and you want to deal with it as quickly as possible and you want to get rid of all of it as quickly as possible. Because if you do, yes, it can be a hassle. Yes, there can be risks, i.e. to your pocketbook. But often, if you address it quickly, there is no long-term damage to your home. If you allow it to go on for years, you get water rot. And I think that's a fairly good analogy to the eye. You allow macular edema to persist long enough you get retina rot. 
And at that point, there isn't a whole lot that can be done. Once you're, once you're dealing with macular atrophy, you're going to lose visual quality and then visual acuity. So we try to be aggressive with macular edema. There are some people that may have a smidge. Say they've got a single cyst or they have, um, you know, you have data that suggests that their typical retinal thickness is right at 200 and their thickness is at 220. You might be a little bit more gentler with therapy. You might give them a course of topical therapy, particularly if their uveitis is quiet. But my experience has been that those patients are in the minority and that something more aggressive is by and large required, something where the therapy is directed more toward the posterior of the eye. Uh, I think that the, the topical medications are usually not effective. And even if the uveitis is controlled, it's important to get rid of the macular edema and not just wait to see if the macular edema will sort of slowly resolve on its own. And in fact, most of the time when we use um, periocular corticosteroid injections in my clinic, it is because the patients are on treatment for their uveitis, and their uveitis is in fact controlled, but they have residual macular edema. And those are the patients that I think respond very well to periocular corticosteroids. And they may only require a single injection to dry it up, and it's possible that it doesn't recur. There are a few disease processes, such as birdshot chorioretinitis, where recurrent macular edema and chronic macular edema are much more worrisome and a lot harder to, to control. Sometimes in those patients, you have to be quite aggressive, both with systemic and local therapy in order to get the macular edema under control. You've explained at, at, at what point you would consider uh, giving periocular triamcinolone. What is your threshold for giving that second shot? Uh, what I tend to do is if I now, – now I'm a little bit more regimented than I was you know, before because we have this great OCT technology. So, um, but what I tend to do is give an injection – have them come back in a month and reassess. If the vision is improved to better than 2025 and there is minimal macular edema, I may not give a second injection. I may allow that first injection to go all the way to month three and see if they've dried up completely. At that point, I may retreat. They've gotten better, but, but there's still a, a fair amount of macular edema and the vision is still not 2025 or better, I will give that second injection at one month later, and I will bring them back in another month and give a third. If they're no better after the first injection, I will do the same. I will give a series of three periocular injections spaced one month apart and wait a month after the third injection before I determine the therapy to be a failure and move to another option. Jen, thank you very much. No problem. Jennifer Thorne is chief of the Division of Ocular Immunology and associate professor of ophthalmology and epidemiology at the Wilmer Eye Institute 
at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Her paper, Periocular Triamcinolonacetonide Injections for Cystoid Macular Edema Complicated Non-Infectious Uveitis, appears in the September 2011 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Thorne or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.